Toasted Sister, I'm Andy Murphy. Toasted Sister is a new podcast about indigenous food. I'm talking with indigenous chefs and foodies about what native food is and how they are honoring it by doing great things in their kitchens and in their communities. I have Chef Nephi Craig with me. He's a White Mountain Apache and Diné chef working in his Apache community in eastern Arizona, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. I visited him last year and experienced the chaos or the organized chaos in his kitchen. While taking photos for an article, I sampled multiple courses of food and I'm still thinking about one of those appetizers. It was an Apache cornbread topped with a three sister salad and some cured salmon. So what have you been up to since? Things have changed. Yeah, um, things have changed. I left my post as executive chef at the Sunrise Park Resort Hotel after almost nine years at that position. It was quite a transition, but I left to uh, begin working on other community-based projects in White River. And um, I'm working on opening a a community-based training center and cafe called Cafe Gorjo. All right. So what kinds of things are you going to be uh, cooking at Cafe Gojo? The menu is developed to reflect um, how our community eats um, with an emphasis on culinary training. So, you know, we'll be doing, um, you know, recognizable dishes and hearty stews. And um, the concept for the cafe is a a fast, casual, grab-and-go kind of atmosphere. And um, we'll also have be selling some uh, retail items and uh, traditional foods. And uh, we will also be um, creating a space to sell produce that's been grown by Ndebikea, or the People's Farm in White River. So we're really excited about keeping this knowledge and technique and foods accessible in our community. I read in a, a list, um, it had a list of all kinds of chefs from, um, you know, all over the place in the country, I think maybe even across the world, but you shared it on Facebook and I got a hold of it and I looked for your name and you said that uh, you want to serve native food in, an, uh, in a certain way. Uh, can you explain that? Uh, that was for the New Worlder. Yeah. And that piece was really neat because... Um, it was Cafe Gojo's first, um, you know, public mention outside of social media. And it was, you know, grouped in with some of the, the best restaurants and places in in North and South America. So there was, you know, Mexico, Lima, Peru, you know, Ecuador, Chile, and Argentina. And right in that list is White River, Arizona. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And it's not even built yet. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so it's definitely a lot of. Uh, need anticipation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was essentially just they were just asking uh, what we what we saw as the future of um, professional cooking. And for me, my response to uh, my hopes for the future or what I you know it's, I don't really predict anything, but I would just like to see um, a lot more chefs 
developing more uh, food programs to feed people in poverty and also to you know teach those those basic cooking skills um, so people can be empowered or enabled to um, prepare meals with what little foods or resources are available. I believe when you have a basic understanding of cooking, uh, you can really expand your your reality when at the dinner table. Um, so that's kind of what I was uh, wanting to do. And I did mention in that piece um, that I hope that um, chefs did, um, fed the people in poverty uh, in a non-patronizing way. What I meant was that I hope that um, that chefs and individuals don't initiate those kind of programs to, you know, gain some kind of type of notoriety or popularity, um, that they do it with authenticity and heart, really looking for little to no recognition for those kind of works. So if they're happening, they shouldn't be popping up on social media at the hands of the people that put them on. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, it, it should be by people who uh, participate in if they even do post. Uh, so it's kind of one of those things where, you know, it should be like a humble act to feed our own people in that way. And uh, I also had wanted to see more um, cookbooks and blogs and videos and techniques emerging around vegetable cooking. Wanted to destigmatize it in a way. And also hoping that more and more institutions, chefs, people, foodies, will mention and recognize indigenous food contributions when it comes to, um, you know, vegetable cooking and also all forms of cooking. Right. And, and can you give me maybe just a quick snapshot of what uh, Native America is like when we're talking about maybe uh, health or, you know, the state of cooking? Because those are really related together. Um, I I was talking with my coworker and we were, I think we developed a, a term for something like this, uh, culinary deserts. Um, you know, we've kind of lost our way of cooking and had to learn how to cook a different way, an American way, just like with all the other um, parts of our culture. We had to put that away. You know, it was forced from us. And then we had to pick up a new way. And, you know, that it's not really working right now. Can you give me a, a, a picture of what Native America looks like health-wise and um, in the kitchen? Well, I, I think uh, what Native America looks like right now is we, we are seeing a resurgence of, of Native foods and Indigenous food consciousness. And uh, from a practitioner standpoint, it, it looks like it's happening all over. Um, but for uh, the average Joe who's at home and, um, you know, doing their 9-to-5 gig and running their errands with their kids, it might be a different reality. That's another piece of the public health equation or even the recovery process on a larger scale from historical trauma because the cooking habits and culinary information or um, the culinary mindset of Native peoples has been um, shifted because of displacement and relocation and all of those, um, those elements of colonialism, uh, we are experiencing this radical pathway back to our culinary roots. The reason I believe that is so important to not only uh, just cooking as a native chef in a fine dining level or, you know, being kind of immersed, uh, immersed in the professional kitchen, 
on a much larger scale for our, our communities and people that are in need. It's really about the experiential learning and development that comes with cooking. If you can expand your food knowledge and expand your food vocabulary and expand your cooking technique vocabulary, a whole world of of nutrition and technique and taste begins to expand. And what you can do with, you know, everyday foods like, say, eggs and rice and celery and carrots and onions and just the everyday staples, if you know how, like, a basic technique of making an omelet, you can really transform what happens in the morning at breakfast. I really think it's a part of the equation that um, needs more attention. It's just about shifting our cultural priorities and the way we see the act of cooking. You know, learning to cook is something that I think is really important, too, and I've seen it within my own life. Um, Growing up on the Navajo Nation, we ate a lot of um, uh, commodity foods and um, just the regular, like, you know, spaghetti, fried chicken, um, you know, macaroni and cheese every now and then. I mean, it was kind of basic. You know, I say basic now because I cook a lot differently uh, right now than, than, you know, what I grew up on. And that was from tasting and getting out there and actually, you know, getting out of the reservation and, and kind of breaking away from the family and being curious about this restaurant and that restaurant and, you know, having the TV to myself and be, being able to watch the Food Network channel whenever I wanted for hours, <laughs> hours and hours. So, um, and I did learn how to, you know, taste food and appreciate where it comes from and I think even appreciating the people that it comes from because, you know, I eat a lot of different food and some of my favorite foods are Middle Eastern, Afghan food and um, pho, pho is is my favorite. (laughs) It's like my soul food now. Pho show, yes. And, And it's my family's favorite now because I'm pushing that onto my family and I feel very, you know... I pat myself on the back. I feel kind of proud to do that for my family is to teach them and then bring some of these foods back to the res, to my family and say, look, bok choy or look, quinoa. You know, you can do this with it. You can do that with it. This makes this taste like that. You know, this makes this taste better. This makes these vegetables, you know, pop, you know. So I really love the idea of teaching cooking. I think that's something that's really important to me, too. Um, it, it, and is that something that's going to be going on at Café Gojo? Yeah, the framework for Café Gojo is, is a unique one. Primary focus is as a training center. The employees will be people that have uh, worked their way up and earned their, um, their space and their time there uh, through working with different programs with Rainbow Treatment Center. So um, those that are interested and... Um, apply and get in through those two programs will have a, a learning plan and the learning plans will uh, kind of be a, a, an all-encompassing uh, hospitality, professional development and cultural ancestral knowledge training um, um, that they undergo on a daily basis. Uh, so that's that's the unique piece of it and uh, while that is happening there'll be other agricultural teaching and learning um, attachments to that, for example, with our community farm in Deepikiyat. Um That will be also where we'll get some of our produce, and for for academics and those kind of scholarly pursuits, they'll be talking about agricultural sciences, biodiversity, food system, you know, dispelling myths, 
the myth that Apaches were not farmers, mm-hmm. when in fact we were very agricultural throughout our history. And just like cooking, we want to be able to help people to have those skills to plant a home garden or grow their own food, just like cooking their own food, because they do go hand in hand, and they're equally as important uh, when it comes to indigenous foods. And let's go back a little bit. What uh, is your definition of Apache food? Maybe you can get specific and then and, and give me the definition of uh, White Mountain Apache food. Apache food is a mix of contemporary American and um, ancestral foods. It's a colorful adaptation in light of colonialism. It's uh, colored by humor and uh, tragedy. It's definitely shifting and altering. Um, but when we think of Apache foods, we think of like uh, acorn stew. We think of bundetane uh, or racket bread. We think of um, Apache cornbread, which is called not a bun. Uh, we think of uh, beef stew. We think of Apache trout. We think of trout, German brown. We think of corn. We think of squash. Um, we definitely think of chilies. Those ingredients, uh, to me, is what I've seen growing up all the time. And there's more wild game. Here in the White Mountain, on the White Mountain Apache Tribe, we've got a wide range of wild game from small to large. That's year-round and seasonal of uh, game birds and fish. So uh, we're very fortunate to be in our ancestral territories and have access to that. Um, so what I think it is, is it's a, it's a mix. You know, we grow up with the commodities, yes, and that's kind of changed too. So what, what I always say is that there's no such thing as like contemporary Native American cuisine versus traditional Native American cuisine. Mm. I don't really use the term like modern Native American cuisine. I just say it is Native American cuisine. That is what it is because to say it's like a modern style, you're just kind of separating yourself from the ancestral roots of it all. Uh, part of the process of uh, cooking Native food and, um, you know, appreciating it today is um, learning about decolonization. How how do you go about decolonizing your palate, decolonizing food? I believe that before you can even decolonize your palate or your food, you need to decolonize your mind um, because you have that paradigm shift where you encounter colonialism as a phenomenon, as a reality, um, you encounter colonialism as a power structure, and then you have to confront it and confront how you've um, embodied that in your life as an indigenous person. And are you willing to make a decision to um, detach from those elements of colonialism that have been damaging to our people? And that includes a, a whole bunch of different decisions from everyday work life, to religious conscientiousness, uh, cultural resurgence, and linguistics, familial ties, and uh, just a lot of different things. So it really begins with understanding colonialism, and then, de- to me, decolonization is like is like the doorway. It's, it's a threshold, and you have to make a conscious decision to walk through the doorway and and live it out. You can't just talk about it. It's not just coffee table talk and keyboard banter on the internet. It's it's a real life change. Do you think your way of eating, you know, at work and personally is decolonized? I would like to say yeah. Um, that's not to say that I'm 
I'm an extremist that only cooks with indigenous foods, that only buys and purchases native foods. Um, I appreciate ingredients like olive oil. I appreciate classical techniques like making pasta or using butter, you know. I'm a chef, you know, that's, that I love cooking. And cooking has been its own education for me, so I'm very fortunate to be able to... Um, to have that kind of um, relationship with food. Um, so I, I feel like I do my best to pick and choose and not over-consume those foods that are not indigenous, those foods that can be damaging. But, you know, it's, it's about coexistence, uh, in my opinion. Um, I feel like uh, I'm still living out decolonization. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm completely decolonized. Uh, you mentioned pasta making. Uh, you made a lot of pasta in the past. Um, can can you tell me where where you come from, where uh, your culinary journey started? My culinary journey began on the res in White River, mm-hmm. in my grandpa's garden, uh, my grandma's kitchen in Crown Point, New Mexico. Fortunate to have good cooks in my family. My Auntie Vivian, my grandmother Nancy on my dad's side, my, my dad's mother, and uh, my mom and uh, my grandfather, you know, those combinations of just pure necessity, cooking for the joy of it or growing food out of necessity. I went to culinary school not really knowing what I would get into, and right away I I recognized that Native peoples were left out of the picture of world, world cuisine. I didn't know how or um, what pathway to to study Native American food, but that's that was what I knew was deep in my heart. Um, but I was also really fascinated by classical French cooking. And um, so that's kind of the, the school of thought that I uh, gravitated towards early on was classical French. Um, because in, you know, the late 90s, that was the pinnacle of, you know, American gastronomy and all of the places around the world was French cuisine. I began cooking with um, Chef Chris Olson at the Country Club at DC Ranch. And he did a wide range of uh, Mediterranean cuisines and Asian cuisines at the country club there, and I learned a lot. And after about five years, I went to, I was fortunate to get a job at a place called Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician, which um, at the time was one of the only five-star, five-diamond classical French uh, restaurants. Uh, definitely one of the best in the country, and I always say when I teach that it was like I was climbing the mountain to visit the the, the Shaolin Temple, you know, <laughs> to like learn the secrets of Kung Fu. You know, that's it was it held that much mystique for me, and um, it was very tough, uh, very structured and disciplined. And every single other line cook in that kitchen was a chef in their own right. And it was at Mary Elaine's that I began to, you know, my own personal research and study on foods. I began to recognize that you know, indigenous foods and native foods were being used on that menu from tomatoes to chocolate to chilies to buffalo to salmon um, to corn, you know, and it, that to me was like reaching the, the reaching one of the mountaintops in my pathway that allowed me to see on a much broader level that native foods were already being practiced at this really high discipline quality level and that anything was possible. After 2003, my son was born, and that's when I went ahead and decided to go public with the idea that had been simmering since, like, 1999 to start the Native American Culinary Association. 
right away it was really neat because, you know, I had this really classically colonized way of looking at cooking and cuisine. And when I left and branched out on my own, I realized I had to decolonize from the classical way of looking at food and technique and organization and, and adopt a, um, a more humble aesthetic and a more humble appreciation and begin to hit hit the roots, you know, hit my, uh, my own home, uh, my grandmother's, mother's, father's, uncle's, you know, working for free a lot of times and, uh, because all my hero chefs, all the great fresh French chefs and American chefs and German chefs, they, none of them had the information that I needed to fully articulate the indigenous experience through food. And it was these humble people in, in my home community that had the existing relationship more so than I did that I wanted to learn their stories and cook around that. And that would take up from 2003 till about 2006 or seven. then I started to travel around the world and cook also. Wow, and and uh, learning the secrets of kung fu and putting an Apache <laughs> twist in it has definitely turned out something really, really great um, and tasty. You know, I've, I've tasted a couple courses uh, from that one mushroom uh, dinner that you made, and you could definitely see all the French and um, Apache and just natural, like very natural, local um you know, flavors going on there. Uh, What is your process like? What what goes on in your head when you're thinking of, you know, I got to put culture, I got to put my signature on this dish? More so now than ever, I try to make the main ingredient um, an indigenous either plant cultivar or animal protein or fish. I always try to, to have some kind of historical background with a dish. You know, in, along with the lines of our tradition of oral storytelling in both um, Navajo and Apache, that a dish comes with an oral story that has a message, that has a moral to it, that has a theme to it, that has a lesson. And so that's kind of like my way of thinking. It's almost like a comic book in the way I see foods when they come together to a finished dish. Um, because I just I don't want to choose foods just for the sake of... Um, creativity and being up on any trends or any of that, I try to do my best to select ingredients so I can I can talk about um, survivance, tenacity, creativity, reclamation, ancestral intelligence, because to me, that's what I'd like the food to be about is a continuation of that oral storytelling and our experiential learning as indigenous people. I want it to be kind of that colorful um, type of learning that you need to be involved with that you just can't watch. I also want it to be interpretive. I don't want my version of it to be the version of it because I could put all my heart and passion and history and local um, information into a dish, and I'm very passionate about it. And if I give that to a diner that's never been to my region... There's no no guarantee that they're even going to absorb half that information, you know. Maybe they will if they're completely ingrained in the culture. So I've got to be sensitive to who's eating as well. But I try to make sure it's delicious, colorful, textural, fresh, and creative and cool, you know. <laughs> 
creative and cool. Uh, Do you think that's uh, maybe part of the part of the reason why, you know, getting into a fad like, um, you know, making some kind of Apache taco or, um, you know, any of these fads that, you know, the rest of America is crazy about? uh, You're afraid the culture and the food, the stories in the food, the importance of that food might be lost if if you did do something like an Apache taco. (laughs) <laughs> with sriracha yeah well it's yeah it's it's funny you know i mean um as much as i love tacos i didn't try to do those on my menus you know mm-hmm. hey um i didn't want to try to jump on the bandwagon you know there's a number of trends that have come and gone um even even when the at the height of the quote-unquote molecular gastronomy trends that just took over all kitchens you know i never really gravitated towards making foams or that style of cooking. I always kind of favored very natural and primal cooking techniques. I like to honor classics and traditions, mm-hmm. uh, but also be very um, disciplined about what's happening around me. Um, that way, I feel like, you know, I can honor the techniques that have been passed on and not pretend I've created something completely new. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you think it's that's just part of that piece of being a humble chef is honoring those traditions and those schools of thought that got us all to where we are today as chefs. As a Native chef uh, working in your Native community uh, connected to Native America, um, are there any issues that um, you're worried about, any Native issues that might trickle down into your food? There are many conversations about uh, food issues and food sovereignty, food accessibility, you know, the, the political landscape of indigenous foods is complex, just like any other political realm. I I am conscious of and worry about, um, you know, Native food being culturally appropriated in a, in a negative way. We've seen it happen already. We've seen it happen in different forms. You know, every single cook, chef, practitioner is, is on their own individual path. And, you know, just because I had a real intense and tough struggle i kind of don't want to see others struggle and 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 encounter hardship and failure in the same way that i did so i'm i'm conscious of uh, those political uh, topics like um, racism um, prejudice uh, even cultural things like alcoholism and substance abuse the adversities that exist within the food and wine culture because the food and wine culture is not doesn't doesn't necessarily match the principles of indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. So, to me, I feel like I can say that and recognize that because I really struggled um, being a young cook and traveling around and trying to fit into that mold, uh, trying to fit into a, a westernized mold. But I just end up being a stereotype. It was very damaging for me. Um, what about? climate change. I know you've been uh, knocking that theory around in your head, climate change uh, affecting food. We had a group, um, a young uh, um, environmental science class from CBQ, Arizona, way out on the the west end of our reservation. And they had approached us at sunrise and wanted to do a um, summertime cooking course and class. And they posed a question that was um, was a was a great one, and we built our class around it. Was um, how will climate change affect our traditional foods? When the students posed that, 
it was really an eye opener and something that I hadn't really given much thought to. Um, I definitely think that uh, climate change will cause a shift in how we perceive food, how we're going to continue to revitalize our food system through agriculture and cooking. As we encounter climate change and as Native peoples, we see Mother Nature going through uh, a change. And so in that way of thinking, Mother Nature is going to force us to reconnect with Native foods in a way that might be extremely vital, extremely necessary, and on a larger scale can influence, you know, greater populations because of Native food technology. I think on a, on a real wide level, there's many possibilities, but on a local level and an intimate level, um, it's, it's special to me because I think, like, you know, Mother Earth is putting out a call to, to the people that hear it that, you know, to reinvigorate their communities and to, you know, reconnect and plant seeds and till the gardens and get back into that indigenous experiential way of learning, you know. Thank you for listening to the Toasted Sister podcast. In this show, you heard about Cafe Gojo. Look for Cafe G-H-Z-H-O-O on Facebook. You also heard about Inde Bikea, the people's farm. The farm is also on Facebook. Just search for N-D-E-E-B-I-K-I-Y-A-A, the people's farm. This podcast is a regular bi-monthly program. Keep tabs on Toasted Sister by visiting the website ToastedSisterPodcast.com. You can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podcast Addict. Music was created by C.W. Ione. Check out his website at cwion.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. You can also hear his music on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm.